I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5. As you recall, the first nine chapters of Proverbs form the introduction uh, to the book of Proverbs. And here we are, and we'll give attention to the fifth chapter this evening. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 to 23. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you might keep discretion and that your lips might guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not even know it. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. Where at the end of your life you groan, when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline, how my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers, nor did I incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let these be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. For why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? And embrace the bosom of an adulteress. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He is held fast in the cords of his sin. And he dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. I remember when I was in college, every Friday night for about two or three years, me and some buddies, every Friday evening, would make our way to the local IHOP around 11 o'clock. Uh, to enjoy a good old-fashioned breakfast for dinner. It's great fun. But I remember one particular Friday night, it must have been Halloween, uh, because as we walked in, there was a group of other college students, maybe five or six years younger than us, uh, waiting for a table, and it was very clear that these college students were highly inebriated, and they were dressed up. And one of the individuals in this group was a, uh, a very attractive uh, college gal, dressed up like the devil, who sees me walking in in my security outfit because I had just gotten off work, and she walks up to me and begins what I think is trying to hit on me. She begins uh, talking to me. To be honest with you, I was kind of annoyed. I just wanted my country fried steak and eggs, but she continues to talk and to uh, flirt and to say all manner of things to get me to re respond to her advances, so to speak. And I remember saying to her, uh, probably the, not the most sanctified response, but I said, ma'am, 
I am on the look for a Proverbs 31 woman, and you have arrived about 26 chapters too soon. <laughs> Proverbs, hey, look, when it comes to a choice between country fried steak and eggs, and a woman dressed as the devil, you always pick country fried steak and eggs. Proverbs 1 to 9 provides the introduction to the rest of the book. It lays the foundation for the wise life. I think it's rather fascinating now that chapters 5 to 7 almost totally concerns itself with linking sexual immorality to folly. And maybe we could put it another way. If the first nine chapters form the foundation for the wise life, nearly a third of the instruction here is devoted to warnings against sexual immorality. Nearly a third of the introductory material to this book concerns sexual integrity. Tonight we're going to consider the first of these introductory, introductory lectures that Solomon gives against the folly of sexual promiscuity. And central to wisdom regards what it is that we do with our bodies including those voices that we heed and listen to. I'd like us to consider three things this evening. First, I'd like to consider the matter of our ears and lips. You see that in verses 1 to 6. Secondly, I'd like us to consider the matter of folly in verses 7 to 14. And finally, the matter of fidelity in verses 15 to 23. So our ears and lips, the matter of folly, and then that of fidelity. Well, as you should expect, Solomon begins this section like he has so many, by saying, listen up, pay attention. That's how I nearly had to begin every time I, every class I taught when I taught high school. All right, kids, it's time to listen up. Look ahead, listen to teacher. Like anyone who has ever taught a young person knows why, it's so hard to keep focused. Why should I listen to an old fogey when it's so beautiful outside and I could be playing out in the playground? What we find here is that there are some temptations that simply don't go away. They only take on a new form. Right? When you're younger, you ask, why should I listen to my parents when I could go play outside? And when you get older, you go, why should I listen to the voice of my father when there are so many girls to pay attention to? But here we see the king teaching his sons the path of wisdom. That what goes in the ear will one day come out of the mouth. You see that here where he says, listen attentively that your lips might guard discretion. Therefore, take in wisdom that you might guard what you are to say and how you are to say it. Especially when it comes to the proper conduct towards the fairer sex. Here he speaks of the seductress dripping words slick as honey. I think it's rather interesting because the psalmist elsewhere will describe the Word of God as sweet as honey. But the drippings here of the siren are a sweetened poison. And it's hard to distinguish the pure from the poison until it is too late. When you have a pretty girl standing in front of you or a, or a handsome young buck, uh, sometimes, especially for younger folks, uh, when uh, uh, your, your hormones are raging. 
It is so hard to listen to the voice of anything. It's, as your moral compass, as it were, it starts spinning round and round and round and round, and you don't know which way is up and which way is down. I remember I, I used to uh, work with youth at my last uh, pastorate out in Chicago, and I remember we had a, uh, um, uh, an all-night youth lock-in uh, with a bunch of the junior high boys, and we played this game called Bean Boozled. Have you ever heard of this game? And it's, you get a bunch of jelly beans, this particular type of jelly beans. Um, I think it's the, one of the cruelest games you could ever play. It's perfect for junior high boys, not good for anybody else on the face of the earth. So what happens, you open up the box and you have two particular teams, and each team, you know, it's a kind of a one-on-one thing, kind of a Red Rover, Red Rover. You, everybody picks somebody from their team that comes up, and they open up the box, and there'll be two jelly beans, both of identical colors. And one guy will pick one to eat, and the other will pick the other and one, let's say the jelly bean is blue, one will be the beautiful tasting blueberry. And yet the other one will taste like toothpaste. Or you have a, a pink one, a pink jelly bean. One of those pink jelly beans, they both look the same. One tastes like, tastes like a strawberry, the other tastes like barf. Or you have a black one that tastes like licorice, or it will taste like skunk spray. And they're very disgusting, and it's very, very frustrating when you lose the game. It's hard to discern between the two. It's almost like a game of uh, confectionery roulette. You you don't know which, uh, there's no way to discern which is the good jelly bean and which is the bad right there in the moment. So the best thing to do is just not to play at all. That seems to be what Solomon is getting here, getting at here. Here you have this game, a sexual roulette. It's a game that consists in life and in death. Solomon tells his sons, you are in essence playing against a stacked deck. If you want to roll the dice against the seductors, the house will always win and you will lose every time. As the siren comes to, to whisper those sweet nothings in your ear and lulls you into a trance, like a praying mantis, she will then quickly devour you. We might call her Lady Death Star. You remember in the first Star Wars movie where the Millennium Falcon gets caught in the tractor beams of the Death Star and it's unable to break away from the magnetic pull of the Death Star. That is exactly how Solomon is treating the words of the seductress. As soon as you lend your ear to what she says, you're as good as done. The words that she says as she flatters you causes your blood to burn with delight. It drives you crazy. It seems life-giving, but it is, in fact, a fraudulent flattery. Her path leads to death. She does not even realize it. Solomon here describes her as a woman uh, who has never even stopped to consider her path. She might not be intentionally trying to lead you to death. She's probably just out to have a good time. But here we see the old proverb that Jesus gives. True here. It's the blind that leads the blind and both fall into the same ditch. Here's a woman who has never stopped to consider her path and now she whispers those sweet nothings in your ear in such a way where she tries to keep you from stopping, uh, to keep you from pondering the path of life. She does all that she can to keep herself and you from reflecting on the objections that come from the moral conscience. 
So what are you to do in such a situation? How do you not be drawn into the disaster by the siren song? You know, you, you picture that image that you, that you read of in the Odyssey as uh, Odysseus and his men are having to, to pass by the, the beautiful sirens who sing their song. It drives men crazy and it leads them to shipwreck. How do you evade such a disaster? The, the words the sweet nothings of the seductress. And see, the answer is, is quite simple. According to Solomon, you see that here in verses 7, 14, uh, 7 to 14, he, you know, to, to use the words of Gandalf the Grey, fly you fools. Run as far away as possible. Verse 8, keep far from her. Do not even go near the door of her house. Do not walk Run as fast as you can. Anything less, and you'll get pulled into her tractor beams. I think it's interesting that the word here for the strange woman, the forbidden woman, the illicit woman, is that word that describes the individual who stands outside of the covenant. This is a common word for the unbeliever. We might simply add at this point that Scripture is giving no room for missionary dating. If a man or a woman is pursuing you, or if you're pursuing a particular man or woman, and that person is not a believer, Scripture is unequivocal on this matter. You are to run in the opposite direction. To do otherwise is to end in disaster. Scripture gives us this warning over and over and over again. How many men and women have turned from the faith by feel, failing to heed this warning? You read 1 Kings 1-11, to it's the great tragedy of Solomon. Even Solomon, the wisest man on the earth, turns out to be an utter fool when it comes to this particular matter. As his 700 plus wives, all pagan, lead him and turn his heart away from the Lord, and he begins to serve other gods. The opening chapters of 1 Kings is very clear that Solomon loves the Lord with his whole heart. And yet towards the end of his life, he had allowed his unbelieving wives to draw his heart to other gods. We might even be reminded of Adam, who heeds the voice of his wife over the voice of the Lord. Matthew Henry, in commenting on this chapter, says this, that often these have been and still are Satan's method of drawing men from the worship of God into false religion. Paul himself will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it's for this reason that you're not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. What hath the Lord to do with a prostitute or with Baal? And yet as an unbeliever and a believer are linked sexually, and as if... if that act of desecration is taking place towards the Lord Himself. I remember a number of years ago, I heard a particular singer speak. He was a Christian musician, and he talked about his struggles when he would tour in Europe and how he would love to walk the red light district in Amsterdam. Not because he planned to go through with the deed, but, and I quote, Sometimes it's just fun to be tempted. What a dangerous posturing this is. As Solomon gives the warning, you are in fact flirting with disaster. 
It is an utter folly to put yourself in a position of sexual temptation, even if under the guise of testing your own limits. I once knew a guy who would intentionally try to put himself into situations like these to see how strong his will was. Guess what? His will was never that strong. Solomon recognizes human nature. Scripture recognizes human nature. You might convince yourself that you're holy enough. You're not. Run. There are some battles that are worth fighting and some battles that the only way to fight is by confronting it head on. When it comes to sexual immorality, that is not the case. Paul writes to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6 and says what? Flee sexual immorality. Run as fast as you can. Why is that the case? It's because sin begins in the heart, doesn't it? And as soon as you lend your ear to the sweet whispers of seduction, you have already lost the battle. Because your thoughts have already crossed the threshold of perversion. This is why Jesus will speak in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, the man who looks with lustful intent upon a woman has already committed adultery in, her heart, in his heart. See, the, the, the battle is won or lost before the actual act begins. It's, the, the battle is won or lost in the mind, in the soul, the will, the affections. We'll see later uh, in, uh, in, in Proverbs where Solomon will say, you know, don't even, don't even think about her ruby red lips or the red wine that she, she swishes about in her wine glass. Don't even think about it. Because the, the, the path, deviation from the path of life has already begun. Uh, James, in writing to the church in James 1, says this, that every person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James describes lust as a monstrous pregnancy in the heart that will give birth to your very destruction. Consider how the temptation spreads and mutates. The accidental glance, the lingering thought, the seemingly innocuous internet searches, hoping to stumble upon content that becomes more and more graphic and more and more explicit. And then you find that you are trapped and it's too late. Your eyes are affixed. Your heart is ensnared. Verse 23, you'll see down here, says you are entrapped in your own sin. And before you know it, boom, like that, 20 years have passed and you find yourself being enmeshed in a life of darkness and cover-up and hypocrisy and perversity. Where if left unchecked, pornography will give way to sexual infidelity of darker sorts until one day your life is ruined. You see the consequences here in verses 9-11. The best years of your life are gone. That's what verse 9 means when it says your honor and your strength are given to others. One day you, you, look, up, you look back and you say, what have I done with the past decade of my life? I've given it to things that have destroyed me, even though they have promised great satisfaction. Not only that, but you see the consequence of slavery in verse 10. You know, I know of an incident um, back east where there was a church officer well respected in his community. He was a family man, a business owner, 
who spent years upon years upon years visiting prostitutes on weekend business trips. He would misappropriate business funds to cover up the trysts, to cover his tracks, to hide these secret meetings from his wife, the hotel fees, to where eventually he felt like he was stuck with no way out. He got stuck in the cycle. Again, like Gollum with the ring and Lord of the Rings. That's something he both loved and hated. He wanted to break free, but also felt enslaved. He kept being drawn back to it over and over and over again, ensnared by his own desires. And then eventually one day the truth came out and his whole world came crashing down. In some cultures in the ancient world, the adulterer, if he is caught... One punishment, of course, in the Old Testament is death. Another punishment that you'd see in other cultures is that the adulterer could be enslaved unto the husband that he has defrauded. In the modern world, we might know other forms of enslavement. Alimony, child support. We're not able to afford hardly anything else because you're still having to provide for a family that is no longer bound to you. A family that is now for all intents and purposes, free from you because it is the safest thing for them. Consider the collateral damage as well, the broken home, the hurt, the jealousy, the loneliness. Even verse 11, hints of venereal disease and perhaps even murder if the jealous husband finds out. How many episodes of Law and Order have you seen where the murder has been committed by the jealous husband who finds out that his wife has been cheating on him. Here is a shame that devours the conscience and steals those nights of peace and rest. You read of David in Psalm 32. He says, when I hid my sin from the Lord, my bones wasted away. It's as if I withered up and died. The paranoia that you will get caught one day gives way to the reckless pride and the gloating that perhaps you never will get caught. And hubris steps in. And you're no longer careful. You get caught. When it all comes crashing down, you're left asking, is it worth it? And so the end of your life, verse 11, mirrors the bitter end of the seductress in verse 4. The blind have led the blind and both have fallen into the ditch. The ditch of death. We could easily reverse the roles where it could be the man who seduces the woman. You see, Scripture reminds us that some sins are in fact worse than others. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, flee sexual immorality. Why? Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There is something in terms of consequences even in this life when it comes to sexual sin, that wreck you more than any other kind of sin. It will wreck you physically, emotionally, psychologically, economically, socially, and spiritually. And if you leave these warnings unheeded at the end of it all, you will look back on nothing but a life of regret. You'll be left asking yourself, why did I not listen to the repeated warnings of my parents? Why did I fail to heed wisdom's call? Now my life is left in shambles. 
I'm reminded of a famous Christian speaker just a year or two ago, passed away, and of course everything comes to light right after he died that he had been living a secret life for years of dark sexual sin. Be sure one day your sins will find you out. We see here that this is told in terms not only of personal calamity, but also the familial and social consequences. The humiliation even in verse 14 that comes in terms of public discipline. You're you're utterly ruined, as it says here, in the assembled congregation. That word there for the assembly, that Hebrew word there is call. Translated into the Greek Old Testament and used in the New Testament, that Greek word being ecclesia. It's the word there for the church. In other words, here Solomon is describing the man whose sins have found him out. And because he has refused to repent, his sin, though done in private initially, has now been put on public display for all the community of the people of God to see. And he is disciplined. And now he bears the shame and the reproach. It's the consequence of unrepentant and habitual sin and treachery. The lips of the strange woman are a poisoned honey. It tastes sweet at first, but it becomes bitter as wormwood. A bitterness that leads and ends in death. Is there a way of escape? What is the antidote to sexual folly and temptation? Well, we find here the remedy found in the most common of things in verses 15 to 23, and that remedy is that of Marital fidelity. Solomon begins to contrast these two different lifestyles that you see in verses 1 to 14, on the other hand, with the, 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 the life of sexual folly. And now he begins to contrast it with a life of marital fidelity and begins by doing so by telling a parable, a riddle, as it were. He speaks here of a private well in verses 15 to 17. I want you to imagine this scenario. This is a common scenario you would see in early modern Europe. Let's say you were living in the streets of London or Paris or Hamburg, Germany. Prior to the 19th century, there was no uh, primitive plumbing or really extensive sewer systems in the way that we think of them today. More commonly, you would see And a lot of these cities would be drainage ditches on both sides of the main thoroughfare. So let's say you lived in downtown London or Hamburg. You lived on the the fourth floor of an apartment. And you used the bathroom in a bucket. And when you were done with that, there's no plumbing, there's no toilet to flush. What do you do? You dump it out the window the third or fourth floor of your, of your flat, and it falls into the drainage ditch on the side, and you better hope, if you're walking on your way to work, that you, it does not fall on you. What is, as the rains come, the, the water would come and wash away the filth. But for those people who did not have their own well and were not near a river or a lake, they would have to lap up water, either from uh, the, 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 the puddles in the street or even from the drainage ditch. That's why you have uh, uh, so many uh, outbreaks of cholera and typhoid prior to the 19th century in these major European cities. It's disgusting. And that's the contrast we see here. Solomon says, why would you drink water from the streets? It's that imagery there. 
No better to drink water from your own private well. An aquifer, it's, it's water that runs deep. It's not kind of flashed about, paraded about for all the world to see. And here becomes the metaphor for sexual integrity. It's a powerful metaphor that points to us the difference between sexual promiscuity and marital fidelity. Verses 15, he says, drink water from your own cisterns. Not from the streets of the water, you know, the, uh, the streets that you find in the ditch on the side of the road or the puddles of mud uh, that's been mixed with excrement. No, you drink from that water, that aquifer that runs deep that is only for you and not to share with anybody else. See, drinking here becomes this evocative metaphor for sexual fulfillment. What will slack your thirst? What will satiate one's God-given desires? Because Scripture does affirm that those desires are in fact good or can be good. They've been disordered by sin. But we find the way in which they find their fulfillment is not in sexual promiscuity where everything is paraded about openly on the streets, but rather in enjoying uh, the marital bond. Marital intimacy is less glamorous. It arises from a hidden well that nobody else can see. Right, there's no need to have what happens in the bedroom splattered on the TV or computer screen for the watching world to see. That is the contrast that we see here in this passage. Does that, does that make sense? Yet we find, according to Scripture, it is more fulfilling Marital intimacy is more fulfilling than pornography, prostitution, or any other form of promiscuity. It's clean. What is that hidden fountain of deep delight according to verse 18? It is this for husbands. It is intimacy with your wife. Wives, it is intimacy with your husband and them alone. I think the ESV kind of softens the imagery here of verse 19 because the, the Hebrew here is somewhat saucy. Bruce Waldke, uh, it's a Hebrew scholar that I really like, translates this particular, particular passage like this. Quite literally, may she be a love-making doe, a graceful mountain goat. May her breasts drench you at all times, and with her caresses, may you always become intoxicated. The single guy, I don't really care to elaborate on that much further, only to echo the words of the Apostle John that the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. Charles Bridges will describe it like this, and there's a very nice way to talk about such things that's difficult to talk about in mixed company, but Scripture talks about it. Charles Bridges will call it those well-regulated domestic affections. The conjugal rights are restricted to the marriage bed and the marriage bed alone, but they are not um, uh, these conjugal rights are not restricted simply to the act of procreation. You see that in verse 19, let her breast satisfy you at all times. That this is one of the three great reasons for marriage here, uh, and, and hence Paul's instruction to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that neither the husband nor the wife are to deprive one another of their marital rights. Why is that? Why does Paul say that? Well, he's echoing the wisdom seen here in Proverbs chapter 5 so that your spouse does not fall into temptation and tries to find intoxicating delights elsewhere. Scripture here is no prude. 
Sexual delight in marriage is one of the three God-given reasons for marriage, alongside friendship and raising godly offspring. The husband here is to find full satisfaction in covenant with his wife and no other. And the wife likewise is to delight herself in the love of her husband and no other. Verse 19 says it should be an intoxicating love, not only in bare sentiment, but an expression of marital joy. See, the Christian marriage, in other words, powerfully depicts Christ's own love for His bride. Where the bride of Christ in Ephesians chapter 8 is called not to be intoxicated by wine, but by the Spirit of Christ. By singing and making melody in one's heart in loving obedience to the bridegroom. As He showers her with love and affection, as He demonstrates most fully, and has demonstrated most fully, in giving Himself up at the cross, that His bride might be delivered and made clean. Here is the wisest sexual ethic you will find on the face of the earth. That the remedy for sexual promiscuity is found in a cultivated friendship and the covenanted bonds of lifelong marriage between man and woman, both being believers. And here we see that the sexual ethic is not the byproduct of Puritan prudery, of Victorian spinsters, or evangelical killjoys. Rather, we see it here, not even beginning in the New Testament. It's found even here in the Old Testament. It is foundational to Christian discipleship. You know, these days, there are so many people who say that sexual ethics are not mentioned in the Nicene Creed, therefore this is a, uh, an area where we can agree to disagree. Well, I'm going to have to degree, disagree to disagree on that. Because Scripture is very clear what the Christian's life should be, what the wise path really is. God has appointed a covenant, lifelong, monogamous, one-man, one-woman marriage between two believers as the means to satiate one's own sexual appetite and to keep you from destroying your own soul. When the early church father, Cyril of Jerusalem, in his commentary on Proverbs chapter 5, asks this, what does it profit a man to be an expert theologian if he is a shameless fornicator? Or to quote the Apostle Paul as he writes to the church of Thessalonica, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. In other words, what you do with your body matters. It's an important component to the wise life that consists in this, in fleeing sexual immorality, in pursuing marital fidelity, and in cultivating domestic happiness as an evangelical witness of Christ's love for His church, Christ who freely pardons us of our sins and washes us clean of all of our sin and shame, even past sexual sin, to the glory of God. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and we ask that You would uh, instruct us in the path of life, that we would heed Your Word and follow uh, those things that You have commanded us to walk uh, and do as a means uh, to keep us from the path to evil. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.